You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Back. Join your hosts and... And Kevin, that's me. The second and fourth Friday of each month on The Sewer Show. Between 5.30 and 6.30pm. Here on 3CR Community Radio. Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone, Everyone in, in our, our community, community has value. value. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, Anne. How are you doing? Hello, Kevin. And hello to our listeners who seem to just keep coming back for more, Kevin. <laughs> well, it, it's, we've been getting little bits of nice feedback, which is always nice. And uh, we should remind listeners that we have an email address that they can send correspondence to because we love some feedback. And the email address is radiommt at gmail.com. And we did get an email the other day from the lovely Jeff. So thank you, Jeff. I hope you're still listening. Excellent. Excellent. Apparently people do listen and uh, and that's a good thing. Hey, um, a, a couple of weeks ago or a couple of shows ago, we uh, spent a bit of time speaking to Phil Lorne. Professor Phil Lorne, who is an MMT-informed ecological economist. And I believe this week we've got some more of that interview you did with him uh, some time ago. So we will be listening to the second half of my conversation with Phil. And just to remind everyone, in the first half of our conversation, we were talking about economic growth and how the mainstream measures economic growth using GDP but GDP fails to tell us whether economic growth is increasing or decreasing or just maintaining our economic well-being. Because you hear the term GDP being thrown around a lot and it seems to be the benchmark um, that uh, politicians use for... How well the economy is doing. (laughs) Yeah, but it's not. It's just a figure that tells you how much activity uh, occurred in the economy in that time frame. As Phil explained, sometimes that can be economic and sometimes it can be uneconomic, which is to say sometimes you can be spending money and it's not doing any good. Mm. Perfect example is uh, wartime is a fantastic time for the economy because everybody's employed and lots of things are being made. Mm. However, people are getting killed and things are getting blown up. So it doesn't necessarily equate that economic activity means Mm. that you're better off. And so in the second half of my conversation with Phil, We will be looking at the thorny question of how you can have a full employment economy. Well, that everybody who wants a job has a job. That's that's full employment, which is not the current uh, definition of full employment. No. So we're talking about genuine full employment. How do we have that? And at the same time, we're going to keep our economy sustainable, which is within the biological capacity of the country. Yeah. Amazingly enough, a big part of the answer to this very thorny question of how to have what I often hear called sustainable prosperity is the job guarantee. That's a big part of the answer. So look, the way I see it, uh, currently what we do with our unemployed is we pay them an unemployed benefit. They're not working and they receive an amount which is half the poverty line. 
So we keep our unemployed impoverished and they're used as a tool to make sure that those who are employed don't get too asky, don't get too needy mm-hmm. because if you ask for too much, well, you might get the sack and you'll end up on half the poverty line uh, along with the unemployed. Exactly. So the unemployed at the moment are used as a tool to put downward pressure on wages. And the big shock to me when I first came to all this economics is that the federal government does control how many people are unemployed and they control that by how much they spend. So the more they spend, the closer you get to full employment, and the less they spend, the further away you get from full employment. Yeah, this is the neoliberal era that we live in. The neoliberalism has been rife since the mid-70s, and the whole premise of neoliberalism is that the private sector should run the economy, that the government should get well out of the way, and so that all the activity should come from the private sector. But what you and I, and know, is mm-hmm. that the private sector depends on the government sector to stay buoyant. Government spending is crucial for a buoyant economy. They need to run deficits to support <laughs> activity in the economy. Now, that activity could be good activity. Like if they're spending a lot of money on renewable energy, on changing the grid, on proper mm. uh, land management, that sort of stuff, mm. that would be counted as growth. It's in the GDP, that would be activity. Mm. And that would be sustainable growth. Growth doesn't have to be destructive. Well, exactly. That's what they call targeting the spending. So we understand that you don't have to worry about where the money comes from. What you do have to worry about is how you spend the money. Yeah. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet www.3cr.org.au. One way to spend that money is through the job guarantee. So what is the job guarantee? The job guarantee, this is um, a program championed by Bill Mitchell uh, and others. A similar thing was also called the employer of last resort by Hyman Minsky, another economist who is now deceased. And another co-founder of modern monetary theory, along with Bill Mitchell, was Warren Mosler. And he calls it the transition job because he's emphasising that it's aiming to prepare workers for the private sector. But Bill Mitchell calls it the job guarantee. Job guarantee. And it works um, very similar to uh, how employment was regarded post-World War II, which was that the Australian government took the responsibility for returned soldiers to make sure that they had work. Mm. Uh, And they basically said, all our returned soldiers, if you can't find a job, we'll find a job for you. The government will find you work. Back then, it was actually close to full employment without a job guarantee because they were doing all that post-World War spending that yeah, you were yeah. talking about. The white paper by uh, Nugget Coombs, a lot of the stuff that he, he wrote in there about full employment marries up very well with the job guarantee. Mm-hmm. So what we're saying is that the government will find you work and they will pay you the minimum wage. Uh, there's discussion about what that minimum wage should be in our discussions with Phil, he suggests 40000 I reckon 45000 um, <laughs> And what sort of work? Well, the work would be sourced locally. This is when you coordinate with local government and you might have uh, replanting programs, uh, post-bushfire or post-flood, where you need to regenerate the landscape. You might need people to help in aged care. There's a whole range of, of activities. Uh, it could be that a lot of the, the care activity is now paid for. So even parenting, it might be that you pay a parent to stay at home. 
Hmm. So there's a whole range of activities that could be included in a job guarantee, paid at the minimum wage. And when you start thinking about it, there's no shortage of extra things that we could yes. use uh, in our economy <laughs> to make it operate better, to be a more caring, more sustainable economy. And that requires people. So what you're saying is that the job guarantee would be federally funded because only the federal government can afford to do this because it is the currency issuer but it would be locally administered, which is where communities get a say in what kind of activities would be done, especially important, I think, for remote Aboriginal communities. Yeah, yeah. If we are going to close the gap, not only between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, but between the unemployed and the rest of Australia, we must ensure there are enough jobs for all those able to work and who want work. Noel Pearson, Indigenous lawyer, activist and director of the Cape York Institute for Policy and Leadership, giving his third Boyer Lecture on ABC's Radio National, 18th of November 2022, titled The First Game Changer. A job guarantee for the bottom million. Economist William Mitchell's proposal for a federal job guarantee would provide minimum wage jobs to everyone who needs a job. It is the best solution to the despair and mental unwell-being that engulfs our saddest fellow Australians. It will lift them out of poverty and deprivation instantly. It will provide solace and purpose, as well as hope, responsibility and self-esteem. This is what we must do to change the game for the bottom million and to close the gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. And, and you can hear people screaming, saying, oh, how, how are you going to pay for this? Mm. Okay, so what are unemployment benefits worth at the moment? Less than 20000 a year. Let's say around 20000 And we're talking about an employment scheme that costs 40000 Half your cost is straight away saved because you're no longer paying unemployment benefits. You're paying for somebody to work. So you pay unemployment benefits and you end up with no product for your money because you're unemployed. But if you engage somebody in a job guarantee they're going to be doing stuff. So the extra 20000 that you're paying, or the 20000 is going to have a productive return as well. Mm. And then there's a flow-on effect that if you have a decent basic income, you're going to be able to contribute to the economy in ways that unemployed people can't. You're going to contribute to what they call the effective aggregate demand. <laughs> yes, for a technical term. A real job guarantee, it's going to be voluntary. It's not going to be coercive. And it's not going even to be economically coercive because you can always fall back onto that half a rate of pay of the dole if you don't want to do the job guarantee. So you're not completely locking anyone out of the economy. So when we talk to Phil Lorne about the job guarantee, this is what we're talking about for those who haven't heard about it. it. It's an employment scheme run by the government that pays the minimum wage to anybody who wants a job. It would bring the dignity of work to every Australian. Noel Pearson. Including the disabled, mentally ill and extremely disadvantaged. 
and that means the only unemployment you're going to have is going to be transitional or voluntary unemployment, which is like people in between jobs or people who just choose to take time off for whatever reason. It means everybody who wants a job can have a job and they'll be paid the minimum wage, which we reckon is forty to $50,000 a year. And the interesting thing, which we will hear Phil say, is he reframes the job guarantee as both a degrowth mechanism and a redistribution mechanism. Right. So I've often thought about the job guarantee as more than just an employment program because, of course, Bill Mitchell talks about it as this thing which is known as a macroeconomic stabiliser, which means that it stabilises the economy because... um, With Mitchell's job guarantee, we have the means to achieve full employment without increasing inflation. It works as an automatic stabiliser in the economy. When the economy's going through a rough time, there'll be more people going onto the job guarantee. And when the economy picks up, that is the private sector is employing more people, there'll be less people in the job guarantee. Because the job guarantee is paid at the minimum wage. Mm -hmm. So if the private sector economy picks up, there'll be jobs paid at a better rate than the minimum wage and people will leave the job guarantee and head into the private sector for better paying jobs. And they also call it an automatic stabiliser because it doesn't require any one politician to decide how much money to spend to stabilise the economy because that decision is just made by people walking into a job guarantee office. Much the same as um, unemployment benefits are a stabiliser of sorts. They're an inadequate stabiliser. But it means that if you live in this country, you will at least have enough money to live on half the poverty line and not less. But it is, in fact, some sort of a stabiliser. And in fact, all welfare payments are stabilisers in that way. Yeah. So anyway, let's uh, have a listen to my conversation with Phil, where he is telling us how the job guarantee can be a redistribution mechanism. Today, I am so pleased to be having a long overdue conversation with Professor Philip Lorne. Phil is an adjunct professor at Torrens University in Adelaide and also a visiting lecturer in environmental and ecological economics at the University of Adelaide, South Australia. So welcome at long last to the show, Phil. Thanks for having me. Because modern monetary theory does focus so much on delivering a full employment economy and it says the mechanism for doing that without having increased inflation is this thing called the job guarantee, which is the government guaranteeing paid work to anyone who wants to work. At a minimum income, yep. Which means you would have zero involuntary unemployment. Yeah, that's right, yep. So how does a full employment economy relate to a sustainable economy, like um, an ecologically sustainable economy? We've got more than enough GDP in Australia to fully employ everyone. But it is possible to find two countries that have virtually the same per capita GDP, so have the same per person GDP, where one country has a much different unemployment rate to another. Mm. So it can't be down to the GDP level by itself that one country's got a different unemployment rate to the other. So what does it mean? It would mean the country with the lower unemployment rate must have a more equal distribution of income, meaning that 
more of the income can be shared through work, paid work, meaning that you can employ more people with the same GDP. So one way you can lower unemployment or have full employment without having to increase GDP, and you might have a situation where some countries could be better off with lower GDP, that may harm certain individuals. Well, that means you might have to redistribute the smaller GDP, and this is where I see the job guarantee as being a redistribution mechanism because it means that people will still have a decent income as GDP falls because uh, they'll at least get a job guarantee job. They won't end up unemployed. Mm. So a lot of people who advocate the job guarantee see it as a means of boosting GDP in order to maintain full employment. I see it as a means of redistributing income through paid work. But if we're able to reduce the incomes of people at the top end of town, uh, that would allow the same GDP to fully employ everyone. So you're just redistributing the GDP through paid work. You're just redistributing the pie, the economic pie. That's all you're doing. Mm-hmm. What I've heard is if you want to get to full employment, you've got to grow the GDP. Right. But not necessarily. Well, the USA, for example, has an ecological footprint, which is 2.25 times its biocapacity, which would mean that for the USA, if the USA was to reduce its rate of resource use and waste generation to what was within its biocapacity, it would have to reduce it to about 45% of its current level, Mm. which would crash the US economy and, of course, unemployment would go through the roof. So just to operate sustainably, you would have massive unemployment. Mm. So for countries like the USA, they face this problem. How do uh, you maintain people's incomes? How do even maintain unemployment at its current rate, let alone achieve full employment, when in order to operate sustainably, the USA is going to have to massively over time reduce its rate of resource use. Is that what people call degrowth? Is that what degrowth is? Yes, that would be degrowth. It, it can be done, but it, has to, it, it means having to redistribute your GDP, your income. So you can't increase your GDP because increasing GDP is just going to increase the quantity of resources that you use. Mm. Can GDP be decoupled from resources? Well, well, of course it can't. GDP is physical stuff. GDP might be a monetary measure, but it's a monetary measure of physical stuff. You know, a dollar's worth of petrol is a dollar's worth of real stuff. It's not a dollar of airy-fairy stuff. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, the more that GDP goes up, it, even allowing for some technological progress, um, basically the, the rate at which you use resources and the rate at which you generate waste goes up. So, yeah, that is, that is an issue uh, that I don't think a lot of people have adequately addressed. How do you achieve full employment if you have a level of GDP that is already beyond what can be ecologically sustained. 
because reducing resource use will, for many countries, reduce their GDP. Mm. Then you have to work out how can you achieve full employment, not only without having to increase GDP, but perhaps having to reduce your GDP. That sounds like an impossible situation. Well, that's where I think the job guarantee can work. I see. So as you reduce your GDP, which you could do by taxing the rich, tax away some of the income of people who receive very high incomes from the work that they do, not to pay for, not to pay for the uh, employment of other people, but so that their share of GDP declines, then it leaves free enough GDP to provide the space to be able to put people on a job guarantee. And therefore, you can achieve. You're just redistributing the GDP through paid work by taking the income earned by some people uh, who are working, the rich, the very rich, uh, some of their income away, and giving it to other people, not through a um, a basic income, but through work. Mm. Um, and that way, you don't have to increase your GDP to achieve full employment. And in fact, you could perhaps achieve full employment with the lower GDP. So in that sense, the, the job guarantee is part of the redistribution mechanism that you would have within the economy. So when um, Professor Phil Lorne mentions the need to tax, and this need to tax is not to get the money to pay for full employment, but to create the space. What is this space he's talking about? This this goes back to a kind of... Uh, a misunderstanding that there's a plentiful supply of everything, but that's not the world we live in. There are limited resources. So if all of your resources are tied up in the private sector because there's a lot of activity uh, and you can't perform government functions, which might involve anything from building stuff to employing teachers to whatever, you can use taxation to restrict activity in the private sector to free up those resources for the government sector. I think of all those uh, smart finance people and economists who are being employed by the superannuation industry, and we could free up all those smart people and those economists to figure out how we get to a steady state economy, for example. Uh, Look, there's a couple of ways you can do it. The government's in a very advantageous position because it does have the ability to create currency on demand. So it could simply increase the offers in wages that it made to the resources that it wants, push the price up. It needs some engineers. They're in the private sector. They say, listen, we want you more than uh, than the private sector does and we're going to pay you more. Well, then you start a, a, a wage spiral mm. uh, and that's inflationary. Mm-hmm. So another way of doing it is to impose taxes on those same private sector engineering companies so that they're less able to spend because they have less funds due to the taxation which means some of those people are going to be available. Uh, And so long as the government is there to pick up the slack, it's not a problem. Mm. And that tells me why I hear so many people saying that solving the climate crisis issue, it's going to also be necessary to solve our inequality issues. Yeah. That's why the two are so entwined. Mm -hmm. Um, So does that mean we'll be reducing the well-being of rich people? (laughs) 
Yes, I guess, but uh, but barely. Uh, what we know is that the marginal benefits of an increase in income are much smaller for rich people than for poor people. So the best way to think of this is imagine Gina Reinhardt's income goes up by $100 per week. <laughs> Would her well-being go up very much at all? And the answer to that is no. She would hardly notice it. A $100 note probably you know, wafts from her pocket. <laughs> well, if it did. And she wouldn't notice. She wouldn't bother to pick it up. Uh, so the, the additional benefits of additional income for the very rich are negligible. They wouldn't notice it. And the welfare of the rich person since it doesn't go up much, if you give them an extra $100, it doesn't go down virtually at all if $100 is taken from them. Mm -hmm. If uh, the income of the poorest Australian went up by $100 per week, it would have a significant welfare benefit. It'd make a huge difference to them. So taxing the rich. So if you take $100 away from the richest person and give it to the poorest person, then overall income of the country doesn't change. 100 from the rich and given to the poor. So you can increase the well-being of a nation without having to increase income. You just redistribute it. And that redistribution is not going to penalise people too much at the same time that it's helping other people. No. But now with those who uh, advocate a universal basic income, they say that the $100 should be taken from the rich person, and just given to a poor person. Mm. I would argue, like Bill Mitchell, mm. that it shouldn't just be given to a poor person, it should be given to them in the form of paid work. And why is that? Well, apart from anything else, work is important to people. We know that. Mm. You're giving them a decent income. Uh, and you are also giving them something that makes them feel a valuable part of society, that they're making a contribution. It will give people all of the intangible, personal, psychological and social benefits that come with work. Noel Pearson, Indigenous lawyer, activist and director of the Cape York Institute for Policy and Leadership on ABC's Radio National. Only those accustomed to the opportunity of work can afford the luxury of the idea that work is not foundational to the well-being of all humans. The universal basic income doesn't deal with the mental illness effects of unemployment. Hmm. They would also be producing stuff as well. They just wouldn't be doing anything, painting rocks. They'd be producing. <laughs> so that would mean that they're contributing to the, the new goods and services that are being produced, which means the income that they earn when they spend it uh, won't be inflationary. Hmm. People don't understand the hyperinflationary effect of a universal basic income. It would be a disaster. Yeah. That is not the case with a job guarantee. And universal basic income would probably result in a fairly large exodus of people from the workforce. So we would have more money being spent 
for fewer goods produced, which would just be inflationary. Mm. Remember, remember, with a universal basic income, we're handing out the money not just to poor people, we're handing it out to Gina Reinhardt as well. What about even a basic income where you're not giving it just to everyone but without requiring that to be part of a, a job? So then you would have people who, who are working full-time whose income would be just above the basic income, so they're working, let's say, 40 hours a week for an income just above the basic income uh, whilst there are others who are not working at all getting an income just below it. <laughs> mm. So the, the job guarantee is a basic income in the sense that it ensures that everyone gets the base level of income, but you have to work for it. Now, I do agree with Stephen Hale that uh, no one should be forced onto the job guarantee. I think the job guarantee should be set at around about $40,000 a year. I think the tax-free threshold should be $40,000 a year. Uh, I think all welfare payments, so a disability, the, the old age pension, should also be around $40,000 tax-free. But there should also be something like the doll for people who do not, who refuse to mm. engage in the job guarantee. Mm. You can't just give people nothing. I think it would be quite an easier way to implement the job guarantee if you just left the unemployment benefits where they were, the job seeker. That's about 20, yeah. It's about 20000 a year. Yeah. yeah, you could do that. Uh, I don't think many people would take the doll. I think most people would take up a job guarantee job. Even if you're talking about young people where, you know, workers seen as uh, something uh, that you prefer not to do. But I think you would just have to see uh, one unemployed person take up the job guarantee job all of a sudden. Become the thing. <laughs> well, they, they have new clothes. They might even have, might not be a new car, but a you know, nice secondhand mm -hmm. car and all of a sudden mates. That, would, you, would you want a requirement that the activities of a job guarantee need to be not resource intensive somehow? Well, some activities are less resource intensive than others, but no activities are resource free. Mm. I mean, the aim is to try and reduce the resource intensity of all activities. Mm. Uh, well, the best way to do that is not so much uh, reduce, because there's a limit on what you can do to reduce the resource intensity of physical things produced, but to improve the quality of the goods so that we don't have to consume as many goods to get uh, a certain level of consumption benefits. So, you know, a person's much better off with fewer high-quality goods than lots of really just junk. You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, a show all about the economics and experience of unemployment and underemployment here on 3CR Community Radio. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter buy yourself a new t-shirt, or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter, at 3CR, and Instagram, at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. 
Catch us anytime on 855am. Keep in touch, 3cr.org.au. So we just heard from Phil where he was answering this question. How do we have a full employment economy, which is an economy that is offering equal access to income for everyone? How do we have that kind of equality as well as having a sustainable economy, which is an economy that is within our biological capacity? Yeah, this is where, this is where I, I start getting socialist uh, <laughs> about this sort of stuff because it, it is... People don't like to use that word, but what we're talking about is a fairer distribution of resources through the economy. Right. What we're talking about is uh, shaving some of the obscene profits from the top and redistributing through the, the lower uh, income brackets in the economy. Now, What I find interesting about what Phil was saying is that What you will hear from the mainstream, and that's everyone from the Prime Minister on down, they will all say that you need to grow the GDP to get to full employment. You boost productivity, you boost national economic growth. Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese speaking to the National Press Club, 29th of August, 2022. Our plan is a growth agenda. And despite what you're hearing, Phil is saying, well, actually growing the GDP is not the best way to get to full employment. And we know we can do it a different way because he looks at comparing the per capita GDP of different countries. And when you do that, you see that they have different rates of employment. What he's saying is that what these countries are doing is they're distributing their GDP differently. And of course, that brings up another way of thinking about the GDP, which is it's the total income of the country when you think about it. Yeah. And so what you're saying is that if you have more unemployment, you're distributing that income more unfairly because more people who are unemployed are on lower incomes and therefore the rest of the GDP has got to be going to other people who are getting more of the income. Actually, it's a really simple way of thinking of things and and economics often comes down to this. You sit there and you scratch your head, but our current neoliberal system promotes polarity of income and it also dangles this false carrot of hope in front of people, (laughs) this kind of aspirational thing where you have all these people who are struggling to get by and who support this system because they think that it's going to work for them one day and they're going to end up doing fabulously well because the system will facilitate it. Well, I can tell you without a job guarantee and without proper deficit spending, the cards are stacked against you. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the system that works at the moment is you will be rich and successful if you exploit workers and resources. Like if you rip stuff out of the earth, don't care about the consequences, screw your, your workers to the floor, mm-hmm. uh, get, get them to work for as minimum as you can, then you'll get rich. Well, And not everyone can do that because someone's got to be on the exploited side. Yeah, but, but <laughs> the masterful thing that they've done uh, on the right is plant that seed of aspiration with people who don't stand a chance of succeeding, right? It, it's, it's never going to work for them, but they all think that it will. 
Um, I remember I was listening to an interview with uh, with a bank executive, and they were talking about one of their employees who was a single mum who had to travel hours to get from work to where she was to earn some wage that was barely cutting it to get by. And they're speaking to this uh, this CEO of a bank who had just received an enormous pay rise. And they said to him, how, how do you justify that? And he said, well, one day she could be CEO. Oh. And you just go, no, she can't. And what's more, she's not the only one in that position. They can't all be CEO. It's never going to happen. Right. So we all should be banding together and demanding a job guarantee. And so it's really interesting that Phil is reframing the job guarantee as a redistribution mechanism because that word redistribution, it does scare the top end of town, Kevin. Oh, they'll, they'll go, socialists, communists, they'll go, whoa, Mao Tung's coming in. It's, it's just, <laughs> it, it, no. I mean, like, an economy is the distribution of resources amongst its community. Mm-hmm. That That is the definition of an economy. It is always socialist to some degree. Mm-hmm. If you like Medicare, if you like your roads, if you like your army for the for the bloody right wingers an army is a socialist organization it is paid for by the state <laughs> yeah and you know i suspect that the louder people are going on about growth i think that's the more they're trying to drown out the redistribution idea yeah yeah like the the ones who scream the loudest about oh you know we need growth we need growth are the ones who are doing the best and exploiting the most out of the economy out of the environment out of people Mm-hmm. So the other side of redistribution too is taxing the rich, which Phil was also talking about. Now that confused me a bit because when you look at it, what he was saying, it does sound like um, by taxing the rich, you're paying for the funding of, of the job guarantee. It, it looks like that, but that's not actually how that's it is. That's not the reason to do it. And I think what Phil was saying is that if you have a job guarantee but at the same time you do not also make adjustments to your taxes, then what you'll end up doing is increasing your GDP. And what we want to be doing is not increasing the GDP because we're trying to get to a sustainable economy. Okay, I do have an issue with that. Like we are talking before, if you can increase GDP and it doesn't affect the sustainability of the planet, I don't think But that's... he's saying it inevitably will. He says that... Increasing your GDP inevitably means you're using more resources. Mm, I suppose so. And so the example with the USA he gave is that ideally they're going to halve their GDP. That's what they have to do. Yeah, well, he said 45%. Like Mm. they're they're currently running at at, at over twice their capacity. So the only way to do that without harming everybody is that you would tax the very rich. And the reason you do that is to create what they call the resource space so that If you think of the uh, GDP as the total resource space that you have, you're taking from some and giving to other people so that you don't have to grow the total GDP. Mm, Yeah. I'm still trying to get my head around that a bit. Mm. I I kind of understand it and I kind of don't understand it. um, Yeah. You have to hear it a few times. And the part about that I don't really get, and I think the economists call it the marginal propensity to consume, which means... Gina Reinhart, you could take away a fair bit of her income, but that wouldn't change how many resources she's using, I don't think. Yeah, I like that analogy. You take 100 bucks off Gina Reinhart, she wouldn't even notice it. You give 100 bucks to somebody uh, on a minimum wage and they're really going to notice it. Yeah, that just that just seems fair, Anne. Like, I, I know life's not fair, but <laughs> sometimes it's more unfair than it should be. Yeah. <laughs> So anyway, there's a whole lot of reasons to use the job guarantee and a whole lot of reasons to use it rather than a universal basic income. Excellent. Um, 
What else did Phil have to say? I was asking him whether capitalism has a growth imperative, as in, do we have to get rid of capitalism in order to stop growing? I'm James Juniper. I'm an economist at the University of Newcastle, and you're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back on Radio 3 CR. Does capitalism have a growth imperative? Okay. Uh, It doesn't need to. Professor Phil Lorne, who is an MMT-informed ecological economist. But in the form that it exists in, it does. But it doesn't have to exist in the form that it exists in, in my opinion. Okay. I go down to my local shopping centre and there is a butcher. And they uh, like to proudly point out to people as you walk past that that it's a family business that's been going for about 70 years. Mm -hmm. And that butcher, I'm sure, shop is no larger than it was 70 (laughs) years ago. (laughs) That butcher shop hasn't had to grow to survive and to provide that family with an income. There is no need for businesses, for the economy to grow in order for capitalism to exist. You can just generate an income over time. Incomes don't have to grow. Things wear out, so there'll have to be investment to replace the capital stock that's wearing out through use. In my opinion, there is no need for the economy or GDP to grow in order for capitalism to be sustained. I'm so excited to hear that. Uh, But in the form that it exists in currently, Mm -hmm. it essentially does. So it could be reconfigured in a way where we just generated incomes and if we wanted more income, uh, we could generate it by just producing better quality goods rather than more goods. Mm. As I pointed out, development is not necessarily about growth. It's about doing things better. So. Would you prefer to frame what we want to do as heading towards post-capitalism or are we trying to tweak capitalism so we've turned it into a steady-state capitalism? Well, I would call it post-growth capitalism. So I talked about a human being. So that's after 20 years of our life, we grow. So part of the development process for a human being is growth up to a point. Then we go, which you and I are in, we're in our post-growth mm. <laughs> uh, state. We're in a steady state. We're in a steady state. Right. My graying post-growth state. <laughs> yes. But just because we're in a steady state doesn't mean that we can't develop as human beings. So, so really, we can look at biological processes to um, model for ourselves how we want the economy to work. Absolutely. It's just another physical system. It's not a biological system, but... It's a physical system, the economy that's subject to the same physical laws as you and I. Yeah. Requires a throughput, an input of resource, output of waste, as long as that throughput's sustainable and as long as the stuff that you're producing to keep the stock of things that make up the economy are qualitatively improving over time, you can be better off. People can still make incomes as they produce and sell this stuff. Mm. And, in fact, if they improve what they produce over time, they can... Uh, earn higher incomes without having to grow the economy. Mm-hmm. And that's how a capitalist system can work. There's no reason for the capitalist system 
to grow in order to be sustained, to avoid collapse, in my opinion. So when you say that it's just the way capitalism is now... It's designed. It's, it's all about the institutions. So what's an example of what you would redesign? Like the stock market or something like that? Uh, well, yeah. So one of the problems we have, it's the way our taxation system rewards rent-seeking behaviour. I understand it's unearned income. Yes. So an economic rent is where you buy something at a particular price, you don't do anything to it. Like a painting and you put it in air-controlled conditions? Yeah, 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 you just put it there and then you sell it five years later at double the value. You've sold it at twice the price and your financial claim on real goods and services rises, but you've created no wealth. You haven't created any. That, that's, a, that's a form of rent. Mm. Uh, and if one person's financial claim on goods and services rises without contributing to the new goods and services being produced, it means it must come at the expense of someone else within the system, someone else who's contributing to uh, the stock of new goods and services coming online is being paid less than the contribution that they're making. Mm. And that's where a lot of the inequality is now occurring. It's not so much the inequality of income, which, which is real and it is important. Mm. It's what's going on in asset markets, in property markets and share markets and so forth. That has a lot to do with the fact that capital gain is not being adequately taxed. Rents are not being adequately taxed. So that's what Henry George talked about, about taxing economic rents. I thank you again, Phil, for coming on the show. Thanks, Anne. And all the best. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. So this whole thing with um, uh, about rents. And and can we define economic rents? Because it doesn't mean just like rents on a house. Rents of the house is, is, is an obvious it's one. It's an example of one. Yeah, yep. but like we, like it was said in the uh, in the interview with Phil just then, uh, rent being where money is earned through it's unearned income so yeah. it's just being earned through interest or through an asset increasing in value or something like that yeah so you buy an asset and it increases in value so you just hang on to it and then and then you sell it later on and you make money on it you haven't done anything you haven't produced anything new it happens while you're asleep it happens while you're asleep <laughs> $50. Okay, so, so housing is a, a particular one. Somebody buys a house, an investment property, they know it's going to rise in price, they can't be bothered renting it out, that should be taxed. 
If you have a vacant property and you're just waiting for it to increase in price, you should be taxed on that as an, a disincentive to... To stop that behaviour. To have an empty property. I mean, because that also pushes up housing prices. The more houses that you have taken out of the, the housing market increases demand, pushes up prices. And so sometimes it's done deliberately. Those are good examples of what they call rent-seeking behaviour that yeah. we would like to stop. I call it rat bastardry behaviour myself. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, you know, Phil was mentioning that in this kind of capitalism, it does have a growth imperative, whereas there could be another kind of capitalism that doesn't. And he didn't say it, but I'm thinking he might have meant um, that we are now living in an era of what they call financialized capitalism, whereas when Karl Marx was writing about capitalism and up until probably post-World War II, we were living through industrial Industrialized capitalism. capitalism. So that was where you had people making things and they were making profit on it. Mm-hmm. Be that as it may, you might you might hate the industrialists, but at least they're making something. <laughs> the, the financial capitalists aren't making anything. They're just shuffling money around from here to there and making more money. Uh-huh. And, and what, what has happened, I think, in this era of financialized capitalism is that we've created a capitalism that has put rent-seeking behavior on steroids. So we'll have to do a whole show about the distribution of wealth at some point. Uh, But as you were mentioning, the uh, real estate market is a big culprit. And Phil mentioned Henry George, who was a uh, fellow who lived somewhere around the turn of the last century, I think. And he was looking particularly at the rent on land. And you could actually find archives of another 3CR show called Renegade Economists. They were looking very deeply into what Henry George had to say. Ooh, okay. And then we also have an economic historian, Michael Hudson, and he calls rent-seeking behaviour parasitic. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. And, of course, even John Maynard Keynes, who uh, wrote that he wanted to euthanise the rentier. <laughs> but this, this kind of goes to the heart of how we operate uh, as an economy, though. Mm. Uh, and then I've been reading reading about the or Karl Marx and the, uh, the Russian Revolution. And this whole connection between uh, an artisan who used to own their tools and make something and sell it, so they took ownership of that product mm. to the uh, where you have an industrialist who owns the tools, owns the factory, and the worker is just there knocking something out uh, and you see the the disconnect between real things that are made real services that are provided as profits grow and and to me that illustrates this mindset that people want to do as little work as they possibly can and this is explained in the neoliberal ideology mm. for as much money as possible and that's a really bad ideology it, <laughs> like, like it's it's good to be proud of what you're doing and, and our system sets you up to be less and less connected with the product that you're creating mm. uh, and more and more focused on delivering profit to somebody else. I think you are turning into a Marxist, I'm Kevin. I'm turning into a communist. Karl Marx did talk about alienation of work and he also talked about hoarding as uh, the accumulation of wealth. Yeah, you know, so people hoard all this currency, they accumulate wealth, they buy influence which is a disproportionate influence. So the people who are doing the less, the greediest people, uh, have the most influence, and it's just wrong. <laughs> well, see, the other thing is that there are some fairly 
uh, benign ways of getting to what Phil was talking about as a post-growth economy. And they're pretty basic practical things. So, for example, all we have to do, Kevin, is nationalise the fossil fuel industries. And the reason you would do that is you'd have the state buy them up and then shut them all down. Yeah, rightio. Well, Rex Connor suggested that back in 1974-75 in the Whitlam government or something near it. Mm -hmm. It's an idea that's been floating around for a while. Yeah. All we have to do is as fast as we can get to 100% renewables and electrify everything. Right. (laughs) We just need to install a few fast trains and put public transport everywhere, including into our regions. Uh, We could do little things like outlaw single-use plastics. We could outlaw built-in obsolescence of things. As Phil was saying, we can grow our GDP without growing our use of resources by increasing the quality of what we make. Now, I was thinking about when he was saying that, and he was talking about how you could become a less intensive consuming society. Uh, And we live in a world where we've got plastic everywhere. Mm. You don't need to make plastic out of oil anymore. You can recycle the plastic. So a lot of the raw stock is is already there. We should look at our waste as a resource. Yeah. I mean, there's whole islands of this stuff floating around out in the ocean, which could be harvested and recycled and turned into something more efficiently than it was done in the first place. And the interesting thing is, if that sounds pie in the sky, the only reason people object to that stuff is they say it's not financially viable, meaning we don't have the money to pay for it. Well, lo and behold, MMT tells us we do have the money. (laughs) Yeah, you've got the resource, you've got the capability, the money fits in afterwards. It's not the restricting factor. It's the the lubrication to make the whole whole system work. Mm -hmm. So we were talking in a previous show about whether we're optimistic, pessimistic or realistic about these changes happening. And I have to say, I get a bit pessimistic when I think that The reason we're not doing it now is the same reason we weren't doing it back in the 1970s and the same reason we didn't do it 100 years ago, which are these power structures that are within capitalism. Yeah. But then again, I am optimistic when I think if more people understood that all of this is so within our grasp that um, they might start demanding it. Well, uh, talking about optimism, I've just finished reading an autobiography by Bob Brown that was written about... 2015 2016 and the title of his book is called optimism (laughs) and it did actually get me thinking he's quite an inspiring person bob brown and he said that in his earlier years he was quite depressed because the situation seemed overwhelming but he then goes on to point out that the only way to change things is with a healthy dose of optimism if you don't believe that change can occur Mm -hmm. then change won't occur but if you believe that you can make a difference then then things will change. And and so you have to be optimistic to institute change. It's a necessary ingredient. So so you're saying that optimism is a belief in the ability to make a change. Yeah. And look, we know that we can make change. The world is changing. Like uh, we heard an interview with Phil Lorne a little while ago, and he said that the Americans are, they are 50% more efficient in the way that they're producing the things. The total world. Is 50% more efficient. Yeah, so we're doing things in a more and more efficient way. So you can apply your optimism to say that we can do this. It's perfectly achievable because we already are doing it. We're just not doing it quick enough and we're not doing it with enough resolve. Mm -hmm. And we've got these filthy, stinking capitalists in the way who are slowing the process down, which is where we need to agitate more and push back. Mm -hmm. So, So with the belief that we can 
push back mm. and change things. You need optimism to achieve that. Kevin, you're inspiring me. And Bob Brown inspired me with his book, uh-huh. and um, and so is is my uh, is my friend Chris, who I'm staying with as well, who after decades of of, of activism and and, and protesting, etc. Concerned citizen. Yeah, you know, you see, well, you know, you're not alone. There's a lot of people who feel like this, and we know that there's a lot of latent people who feel like this who can't find the avenue to to push back well get out there and have a look like, mm-hmm. like find a group join a group do something you know make some noise it's, yeah. it's, it's help important. us start a, a modern monetary group again in melbourne uh, well modern monetary money it, it, it frees you from the restraints of the orthodox uh, economics mm. and shows you that uh that money is not the problem for these things not to happen and that, that sets your mind free a bit which is good well optimism is catching that's mm. the message yeah. for today <laughs> okay well it's time for vicky who's coming on with mafalda for a regular show Thanks again for another show, great show, and we'll see you next time. See you next time, Kevin. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join us the second and fourth Friday of each and every month as part of the Sewer Show on 3CR. Listen to this show as a podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. We thank all our guests, and I thank you, Anne. And I thank you, Kevin. Oh, no, no, the pleasure was all mine. Oh no, Kevin, the pleasure was all mine. You mean all the pleasure was yours? Kevin, I think I took all the pleasure on this one. <laughs> well, if you took all the pleasure, that means I, there's no pleasure for me at all. I, oh. I quite enjoyed myself. So if you've got all the pleasure, then what, I had no, I had no pleasure? I think we should share the pleasure. <laughs> well, we're going to have to share the pleasure because, you know, like, I don't mind you having the pleasure, that's great. So we have as much pleasure as you like, but don't take all the pleasure. Well, it was very pleasurable, so I'm glad that it was pleasurable for you and it was People talk about capitalism being evil, being wrong. There's some truth to that, but short of a revolution, we could just change the way we do things with money to improve the situation. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.